You can now get two free audiobook downloads and a 30-day free trial at audible.bogosity.tv. Your choice from the world's largest selection of over 180,000 digital audiobooks and spoken word content for your iOS or Android device, Kindle, or MP3 player. Go to audible.bogosity.tv now. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of January 28th, 2018. The podcast that spit on the mat and called the cat a bastard. This is your host, Shane Killian, and returning this week is John Peterson. Welcome back, Johnny. That's right, my sons. I have returned. Again. One quick announcement, I won't go into details, but a lot of stuff that Patreon has been doing lately has been causing patrons to drop out of supporting their favorite creators, and we've all been taking a hit. A couple of them asked me to create a profile over on Maker Support, so they can support me there instead, so you can do that over at makersupport.com slash ShaneDK. That is makersupport.com forward slash ShaneDK. Everyone should know it's the forward slash by now, right? We shouldn't have to specify that. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. (laughs) Let's recombobulate the news of the bogus. And of course, according to Democrats, absolutely the worst, most dangerous president ever is Donald Trump, and they think he's so dangerous and untrustworthy that they just gave him another six years of warrantless wiretapping powers. Congress voted to renew Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act, which basically allows the government to spy on Americans without getting a warrant first. Supposedly, they can only target foreigners. But it actually says that they can spy on Americans who are talking about foreigners, even if there are no foreigners actually involved in the conversation. Irony! There was an amendment in the House from Justin Amash and Zoe Lofgren to require a warrant under the Fourth Amendment but it was voted down 183 to 233, and the FISA 702 extension passed 256 to 164. Its big supporters include Nancy Pelosi and Debbie Wasserman Schultz. So, they hate the God Emperor, but they're giving him more wiretapping because... what? Because we love big government, you <laughs> know. So it went to the Senate, which immediately voted 60 to 39 to shut down all debate and opportunity for amendments and hold the final vote, which passed 65 through 34. Supporters include Jeff Flake, Patrick Leahy, Chuck Schumer, and Dianne Feinstein. Flake himself had a week earlier compared Trump to Stalin. I guess he figures his comrade deserves more power over us. And check this out. Feinstein introduced an amendment that would have required a warrant, and then, less than an hour later, she voted to block that amendment from being voted on. In America, irony never hits anyone. That's my best Russian impression. Make of that what you will. Defending this contradiction were lawfare commentators Jack Goldsmith and Susan Hennessy, who wrote, The public evidence confirms that the problems that used to be devil's secret electronic surveillance through the Hoover-Nixon era, namely senior political figures deploying intelligence agencies and tools for inappropriate, abusive political purposes, have been resolved by a robust legal regime of oversight and reporting. The massive transparency, both voluntary and involuntary, over the past few years about how Section 702 operates shows that it has not been abused for domestic political spying. Lawfare co-founder Bobby Chesney said pretty much the same thing on the latest Risky Business podcast. He even said, quote, 
When you imagine this applied in the context of evidence that the NSA may come across that there's, say, child pornography going on, what's not to like about getting that into the hands of the prosecutor? What was that quote two weeks ago? Beware the four horsemen something something child pornography something something? Yep, that was one of the four horses of the information apocalypse, yeah. Marcy Wheeler had no problem tearing these ridiculous claims to tatters. Quote, NSA never ever complied with John Bates' 2011 requirement that the NSA not conduct backdoor searches on upstream collection because it might result in searches of those entirely domestic communications. It is absolutely false to claim that the system fixed or terminated the problem long before they came public. Plus, I'm not sure why they think that Schiff's attempt to fix the Section 215 phone dragnet only after Edward Snowden made it public proves that Schiff never hesitated to be critical of intelligence community practices. On the contrary, it proves that he did hesitate to do so before excessive programs became public. You can't pass a bill that effectively blesses FBI's use of backdoor searches on Americans about whom it has no evidence of any wrongdoing while admitting you don't know how FBI conducts those backdoor searches and make any claim to conduct adequate oversight. And in other news, people are more distracted with the football stuff than with their own rights. Rather, the bill permits FBI to continue practices it has stubbornly refused to brief Congress on rather than demanding that FBI brief Congress first so Congress can impose any restrictions that might be necessary to adequately protect Americans. When surveillance boosters like Hennessy and Goldsmith say there have never been any willful violations of the law, they manage to ignore the notice violations that have allowed some pretty problematic practices to avoid judicial oversight only because by breaking the law, DOJ ensures no court will find them to be breaking the law. Catch-22. Hence, legal violations never get reviewed by a court. Tails, surveillance boosters can claim the surveillance has a clean bill of health. Again, this is a known egregious problem with the implementation of 702. Double bogon points if you still think that they are using it to spy on the terrorists. President Trump signed the bill into law on the 19th, so so much for draining the swamp. Instead, he's draining the swamp on my head. How much more evidence do people need before they realize there ain't a lick of difference between Democrats and Republicans, and all of this vociferous hostility toward each other is nothing more than a dog and pony show? Better question. When are these people going to realize that we're the based ones? Say, if you're tired of the promos in this podcast, well, the patrons got it early and with no ads or promos. Just go to patreon.bogosity.tv and donate at any level. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttletwins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain, or regulations passed in the name of safety, and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. 
They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now let's move on to something completely hilarious. The city of Savannah, Georgia is getting tough. Not on thieves or muggers or rapists, but on, get this, shopping carts. <laughs> yes, apparently there are quite a few stolen shopping carts that have been abandoned around the city. And who is the city going after? The stores the shopping carts were stolen from. Talk about blaming the victim. Sorry, I'm just trying to hold back my laughter, Shane. <laughs> Their proposed ordinance requires businesses to submit a shopping cart theft and retrieval plan and establishes a $500 fine for violating those requirements, as well as a $375 retrieval fee for each stolen cart. Kathy Kuzava, president of Georgia Food Industry Association, pointed out how obviously wrong-headed this is, quote, You don't want to overregulate the stores you want to come into the area. And Thomas Busey, Director of Governmental Affairs for the Georgia Retail Association, came up with the innovative and radical idea of going after the actual thieves by enforcing existing laws. But Alderman John Hall is unfazed, thinking that it's up to the stores to not be stolen from. Quote, We don't mean to be punitive in our actions, but we want your attention. You're going to have to come up with a game plan on how you protect your property. Wait! Isn't that what people like you keep telling us government is for? Womp womp. We don't protect you from... You protect yourself from theft, and if you don't, we fine you. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. So we've covered stories about Uber. And we've covered stories about security. And we've covered stories about both at the same time, and generally in those, Uber doesn't come out looking so hot, including when they tried to hush up a data breach by describing a bribe to the hackers as a bug bounty, something their chief security officer got fired over. But here's one where it isn't as bad as people are saying it. It actually raises a pretty good question. So this has to do with something we've talked about, two-factor authentication, where, in addition to your username and password, you have to type in a code you receive in email or text or get from an app. So the second factor is your ability to get this code from your device. Uber uses texting, and we've talked about why this isn't the greatest way to do this, as the SS7 system isn't that secure, but it's better than nothing. The thing is, 
Nothing is what people are saying Uber does a lot of the time. What they're doing is giving you the second factor when it thinks the risk warrants it, like you're logging in from a different country, a different ISP, a new browser or OS or something like that. Softball Security did some tests and found out that it was actually pretty easy to trigger the second factor, and once it was typed in, they weren't asked again as long as they were logging in from the same computer. Now, to a lot of security-minded people, this is a bad thing. I mean, isn't it better to have two-factor authentication turned on all the time? But the thing about two-factor authentication is it's annoying. You have to go and grab your phone each and every time, type in that number. If it's a text, you might have to wait on it. Even in a best-case scenario, people don't like it to the extent that over 90% of Gmail users have not activated two-factor authentication. So what Uber's actually trying to do is a happy medium, not bothering people with it when the overwhelming likelihood is it's the same user returning, and hopefully that means more people turn it on because, let's face it, the worst security feature is one you won't use. <laughs> Sophos gives the usual recommendations for users. Make sure you've changed your password since the breach. Pick a good strong password for every account. Don't reuse passwords, and best of all, use a password manager. But they do have one suggestion for Uber. Give users the option of turning on two-factor authentication all the time. That way, people who favor security over convenience can get what they want, too. And to that, I would add, stop using texts. Let us use a time-based standard so we can use Authy or Google Authenticator and use it even when we don't have cell service. Because what are you supposed to do if you don't have any bars? Nothing. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you're stranded out in the middle of nowhere somewhere and you need to call an Uber and you don't have cell service... You're practically S-O-L, my friend. Yeah, so it's a good happy medium, but they could. there's a couple other things they could do to make it better. So. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the Internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the Internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your Internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now. And now it's time to bleach out this week's biggest bogon emitter. And this week, it belongs to our old friends over at the U.S. government. For the latest in the continuing fiasco that is the ridiculous action against mega-upload-creator-kim.com. After a Hong Kong court ordered the U.S. to return all of his assets that they had seized, they delivered two containers which were filled with furniture that had rotted completely through. 
So finally, after six years, everything that was seized from Dotcom's Hong Kong penthouse, none of which had anything to do with any sort of criminal activity, was finally returned. But Dotcom wasn't happy as he posted picture after picture of the ruined furniture. In addition, an editing suite containing 600 hours of family footage had been destroyed. Looked like a real nice one, too. Yeah. The worst part of all of this is that the U.S. government had made Dotcom pay for climate-controlled storage, but the items clearly were not stored anywhere that had any climate control, meaning that the government just took the money and kept it. <sighs> and this also isn't a good sign for people who are wanting their mega-upload files back. Remember, a lot of people had personal files on the cloud service that had nothing to do with any kind of copyrighted anything, but .com fears that the servers might be in a similar state of deterioration, threatening not only the files of his users, but also evidence vital to his defense, as well as all backups. This has put me in a really bad mood. Yeah. Now, .com has filed a lawsuit against the U.S. government for $6.8 billion in damage, which include the estimated value of the mega-upload companies, as well as that of all assets. He has said he may also sue the governments of Hong Kong and New Zealand. Good. They deserve that after the stunt they pulled. And that is why Shane and I... Perhaps empathetically to our friend Kim.com, has labeled the U.S. government this week's biggest bogon emitter. Okay, after that, I think we need to lift our spirits a bit. And what better way to do that than with 2018's first recipient of the Silver Cluon Award? Now, for those of you who join us, the Silver Cluon is only awarded to those who kick Bogosity right in the lowercase i. And we generally only give it out like three, four, or five times a year, so let me give you some background information on this. One of my favorite science fiction movies, as well as a fan favorite of many online, is the 2007 film The Man from Earth. This was the swan song of Jerome Bixby, famous for the Twilight Zone episode It's a Good Life with Billy Mooney as well as several fan-favorite Star Trek episodes, including Requiem for Methuselah, Day of the Dove, and Mirror Mirror. He literally wrote this story of a 14,000-year-old caveman in modern times on his deathbed, and after he died, his son Emerson thought about getting it made. To this end, he teamed up with director Richard Shinkman and lots of great actors, including David Lee Smith, William Cadd, John Billingsley, and Tony Todd, who horror fans alike should know from the movie Candyman, as well as Worf's brother on Star Trek. Even before it was released, an early screener got spread around the internet via file sharing. Well, instead of running off screaming to sue everyone like Hollywood generally does, the indie producers engaged with the community. Their word of mouth was far better marketing than anything they could afford, and they saw their IMDb ranking increase 100,000% in the week running up to the release date. According to Shankman, quote, once we realized what was going on, we asked people to make donations to our PayPal page if they saw the movie for free and liked it, because we had all worked for nothing for two years to bring it to the screen, and the only chance we had of surviving financially was to ask people to support us and the project. And happily, many people around the world did donate, although of course only a tiny fraction of the millions and millions of people who downloaded pirated copies. So it went on to win multiple awards and became one of the highest-rated science fiction movies on IMDb and received over 650,000 ratings on Netflix. Now, they've made a sequel, The Man from Earth Holocene, 
And this time, Shankman made online piracy a tool to be leveraged deliberately, quote, It was going to get uploaded regardless of what we did or didn't do, and we figured that as long as this was inevitable, we would do the uploading ourselves and explain why we were doing it, and we would once again reach out to the file-sharing community and remind them that while movies may be free to watch, they are not free to make, and we need their support. And they did. Their release on the Pirate Bay, quote, includes a greeting from me at the beginning, pointing out that we did indeed upload the movie ourselves, and asking people to visit manfromearth.com and make a donation if they can afford to and if they enjoyed the film. The version we posted is very high resolution, although we are also sharing some smaller files for those folks who have a slow internet connection where they live. We're asking people to share only this version of the movie, not to edit off the appeal message, and of course we're asking people not to post the movie at YouTube or any other platform where someone other than us could profit financially from it. That would not be fair, nor in keeping of the spirit of what we're trying to do. And they're also hoping to make this into a series of movies, or even a television series, but a lot of that will depend on how much support they get, and this, I've said this before, I think this is how people should view this in the future. It shouldn't be pay because they made a movie, it should be pay them so they can make another one. Congrats on your brand new, shiny, out-of-the-box silver coupon. Think of it as our New Year's gift to you. And here's to it lasting another 14,000 years. If you're going to shop online, use our special links to shop at Amazon. Clear your cookies and go to Amazon.Bogosity.tv, and you won't pay a penny more for your purchase. If you haven't used the mobile app in the last 12 months, or even at all, go to Get5.Bogosity.tv on your phone or tablet and get $5 off your order of $10 or more. Go to Prime.Bogosity.tv for a free 30-day trial of Amazon Prime and enjoy thousands of movies and TV episodes, borrow Kindle books, and get unlimited two-day shipping for free. And speaking of Kindle, go to Kindle.Bogosity.tv for a 30-day free trial to Kindle Unlimited, read over 1 million books, and listen to thousands of audiobooks on any device. You can go to music.bogosity.tv and get a free 30-day trial of Amazon Music Unlimited with access to Amazon's entire library of 10 million songs, ad-free and with unlimited skips, and even download to listen offline. All great ways to help this podcast simply by shopping at Amazon. And now it's time to Metsu Shoryuken this week's now that was one worthy of Daniel. <laughs> Thank you, man. You have arrived, young Padawan. And this week it goes to Intel, who is telling people not to apply the security patches for the very serious meltdown and Spectre vulnerabilities because it makes their processors prone to crashing, something that made Linus Torvalds cuss a lot. Now, without taking a whole lot of time to describe, the meltdown is a flaw that only impacts Intel processors. It allows any application, so that means including malware, to access any portion of memory, including parts of memory where there might be things like encryption keys or passwords, things that should be protected. Fortunately, it's an easy fix. As long as you've updated your system, it should be good now, and it doesn't affect AMD and ARM processors. Spectre 
is similar, except that it affects all processors made in the last decade or two, and that's from Intel, AMD, and ARM. Spectre takes advantage of speed optimizations in the processor and makes it more likely for there to be a breach, even if the programmers followed best practices. It's harder to exploit, but it's also much harder to fix. Fortunately, so far there are no known exploits in the wild. But both of these are going to require significant changes to how future CPUs are designed. And of course, old ones can't be patched or recalled. It's not like Intel's going to come knocking on your door and say, Hey, we've got this new processor we're going to put in your computer for you. Doesn't quite work out that way. So what we're left with is OS mitigations that can cause slowdowns. More so with Intel chips than AMD, especially pre-Haswell Intel processors. Which is where Linux comes in, specifically this debate over how they're going to implement these fixes. Now ordinarily, reading posts from the Linux kernel mailing list would not make for good podcast listening. You've got lots of interesting words such as frobbing with an F. And of course, lots of initials that are completely meaningless even after you know what they stand for. But we'll do our best with it. I'm going to go a little bit out of order and start with a later post by David Woodhouse, an engineer at Amazon in the UK. He previously worked at Intel. You might want to keep that in mind. He might not be completely unbiased here. But he gave a pretty good summary of what the debate was all about. Quote, Since the peanut gallery is paying lots of attention, that's us, all of us people who don't really know what they're talking about, it's probably worth explaining it a little more for their benefit. This is all about Spectre Variant 2, and I'm specifically looking at what we can do on current hardware where we're limited to the hacks they can manage to add into the microcode. The mitigation is not just a set-and-forget feature. It needs to be set on each entry into the kernel from user space or a VM guest. It's also expensive and a vile hack, but for a while it was the only option we had. Even with IBRS, which is what this mitigation is called, the CPU cannot tell the difference between different user space processes and between different VM guests. So in addition to IBRS to protect the kernel, we need the full IBPB barrier on context switching and VM exit, and maybe STIBP while they're running. Loving the initialisms yet? Alright, basically what this means is that one of the Intel microcode fixes has to be turned on and off when the kernel is entered. You can't just turn it on and leave it on. So he continues, Then along came Paul, and I'm assuming he's talking about Paul Turner, a software engineer with IBM, with the cunning plan of, Oh, indirect branches can be exploited? Screw it! Let's not have any of those in! Which is Retpoline, and that's the name of the, the fix for this. And it's a lot faster than probing IBRS on every entry into the kernel. It's a massive performance win. Not everyone has a Retpoline compiler yet, but okay, screw them. They need to update. It's just like with Windows 10 and its updates. Yeah. Yeah, so basically, if you're a Linux developer and you're building kernels, you need a compiler that supports this Redpoline fix. So, Kareem Allah Ahmed, I'm sure Ibrahim will tell us in the comments how I've screwed up that name, but he's an engineer with Amazon Web Services. He submitted a patch. Technical gobbledygook, start using the newly added microcode features for speculation control on both Intel and AMD CPUs to protect against Spectre V2. This patch series covers blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to read it. Even if there are software devs listening, they might be going, nope, that's too many initials for me, I'm out. <laughs> IBPB, MSR, KBN, BRB, LOL, BYOB, and OICU812. <laughs> Bear with me, we'll soon get to the fun parts with all the swearing, so. 
After Ahmed's submission, it was Andy Ludomisky who made the post that got Linus all wonderfully triggered where he said, Holy cow! There are so many macros here! And a meta question, why are there so many submitters of the same series? So, I mean, it's just this really complex and unmanageable patch, so Linus Torvalds replied, All of this is pure garbage. Is Intel really planning on making this shit architectural? Has anybody talked to them and told them they are fucking insane? Please, any Intel engineers here, talk to your managers. Jeez, Linus, don't hold back. Tell us how you really feel. Yeah, Linus. <laughs> Whoa, Linus. Linus with the heart knockdown. Linus, you, you, you know, you're supposed to build up to that. Goku didn't start with the spirit bomb early. He doesn't hold that. He doesn't hold back. <laughs> And then Woodhouse, who, remember, used to work for Intel, very politely pointed out, if the alternative was a two-decade product recall and giving everyone free CPUs, I'm not sure it was entirely insane. So Torvalds replied, and this is epic, You seem to have bought into the Kool-Aid. Please add a healthy dose of critical thinking, because this isn't the kind of Kool-Aid that makes for a fun trip with pretty pictures. This is the kind that melts your brain. <coughs> Woodhouse said, Certainly it's a nasty hack, but hey, the world was on fire, and in the end, we didn't have to just turn the data centers off and go back to goat farming. So it's not all bad. Oh, straight through the uprights, Shane. <laughs> yeah, I gotta love his, uh, his high standards there. It's better than goat farming. So, as a hack for existing CPUs, it's just about tolerable, as long as it can die entirely by the next generation. Well, one thing... Linus Torvalds has noticed is that things like this don't die. They get in the code for the kernel and they stay there because people are going to say, hey, years from now they're going to say, hey, people are running all of these old systems. We need to keep these mitigations in there for them because one of the big things about Linux is that it runs great on old hardware. So, so Torvalds replied, quote, it's not that it's a nasty hack. It's much worse than that. Intel actually seems to plan on doing the right thing for Meltdown, the main question being when, which is not a huge surprise, since it should be easy to fix, and it's a really honking big hole to drive through. Not doing the right thing for Meltdown will be completely unacceptable. So the IBRS garbage implies that Intel is not planning on doing the right thing for the Spectre vulnerability. Honestly, that's completely unacceptable too. To me, it very clearly says, Intel is not serious about this, we'll have an ugly hack that will be so expensive that we don't want to enable it by default, because that would look bad in benchmarks. So instead, they tried to push the garbage down to us, and they are doing it entirely wrong, even from a technical standpoint. I'm sure there is some lawyer there who says, we'll have to go through motions to protect against the lawsuit, but legal reasons do not make for good technology or good patches that I should apply. So Woodhouse talks about how we need these patches, and Torvalds just goes completely epic. Bullshit. Have you looked at the patches you're talking about? You should have. Several of them bear your name. The patches do things like add the garbage MSR rights to the kernel entry and exit points. That's insane. And I'm skipping over a lot of the justification about this. He's not just saying it's garbage. He's explaining how. But somebody isn't telling the truth here. Somebody is pushing complete garbage for unclear reasons. Sorry for having to point that out. The patches are complete and utter garbage. They do literally insane things. They do things that do not make sense. 
That makes all your arguments questionable and suspicious. The patches do things that are not sane. What the fuck is going on? And that's actually ignoring the much worse issue, namely that the whole hardware interface is literally misdesigned by morons. It's misdesigned for two major reasons. This first reason is the interface implies Intel will never fix it. And he says, do you really think that is acceptable? And the second is there is no performance indicator. The whole point of having CPU ID and flags on the microarchitecture is that we can use those to make decisions. But since we already know that the overhead on Intel Spectre mitigation patches is huge on existing hardware, all those hardware capability bits are just complete and utter garbage. Nobody sane will use them since the cost is too damn high. It's too damn high! Gotta invoke that meme. So you end up having to look at which CPU stepping is this anyway. I think we need something better than this garbage. Now before you go thinking that this is just Linux and it doesn't really matter because so few people actually run Linux, remember, Linux runs underneath Android and there are more Android devices operating in the world than anything else. Linux is running underneath Roku and other TV players. Linux is running under the lion's share of IoT devices. What Linux does really matters to the industry. So what we're seeing here, I think, is just the beginning of something that's going to have ramifications going down the line for years. Intel seems willing to just shrug the problem off to users and make OSs take the performance hit just so they can keep themselves legally covered while maintaining all those nice big performance benchmarks that they so love that they've been basically cheating on for years anyway. We need people like Linus Torvalds out there watching out for people like you and me because otherwise we just have to accept whatever crap Intel puts out. And Torvalds, who doesn't have to worry about making hardware manufacturers and other partners happy, is in the perfect position to be our advocate, and it's great that we have him here doing just that. Not to mention, he really needs to work on leading up to the knockdown. So what we have here is a back and forth where Woodhouse has been very civil and polite, and Torvalds wasn't polite, wasn't civil, wasn't nice, wasn't cordial. He was just right. And that just has to make Intel this week's... Idiot Extraordinary! Well, that wraps up this Shovels and Rakes and Implements of Destruction edition of the Gossity Podcast. Come join the discussion at forum.bogosity.tv and feel free to send a question, statement, news article, or rant in text or audio to podcast at bogosity.tv. This podcast depends on you to keep going, so please donate using the links on the website or the QR codes in the thumbnail or support Shane DK on Patreon and Maker Support and get the podcast and YouTube videos early and without ads or promos. Thank you for listening and thanks to John Peterson for joining me. And make sure to join both the Bogosity and Lord Killian Discord servers. Until next time, here's a quote from Rick Cook. Programming is a race between software engineers who strive to produce idiot-proof programs and the universe which strives to produce bigger idiots. So far, the universe is winning. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial Low Derivatives 4.0 International License.
want answers to creationist claims against evolution? Would you like to know more about evolution yourself, or even engage creationists more directly, with actual peer-reviewed sources to back you up? My book, How Evolution is Scientific, is designed to show the basics of evolutionary theory and how it is so well supported using the scientific method. It's impeccably sourced, with references to the actual scientific material, and is arranged using the creationists' own criteria of what is scientific. Using their own arguments against them, see how evolution is scientific, but creationism is not. Based on observations, accurate predictions, logic, and evidence. Get answers to common creationist claims, and even a primer on abiogenesis, the start of all life. It's all in my book, How Evolution is Scientific, available at Amazon and on Kindle, EPUB, and PDF as well. Get How Evolution is Scientific and never be taken in by creationists again.